This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Friday show. We finally get back on schedule Monday when we come back. Pray for me. I need to be on my routine. Hey, thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions or life questions, anything that's on your heart and mind, what we believe as Christians, why we believe it. Uh, I'll do the best I can to answer. You need only to call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send your questions to us that way. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. You can use your hands-free feature. Just one button. Call now at the top of the screen, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. 340-9585. Thank you for tuning in today. Uh, Before we get into the questions that we've been sent, uh, and while we're waiting for phone calls, a reminder, uh, we mentioned it on the program Paul and I did last night. Uh, If you are interested in coming to uh, Calvary Chapel of San Antonio tonight. We will not be having a Bible study. We finished a book, and what we do on Friday nights uh, before we enter a new book is we have an afterglow, and that's a time where the body gets to minister to itself. I'm always excited about the afterglows because I, I want to hear from the Lord, uh, and the body itself will will uh, share words of encouragement and, I hope, words of knowledge and words of wisdom. I'm certainly looking for either of those things, especially at this time of year, as we're looking for some direction to go into the new year. Uh, The Lord always has a theme. Uh, The gifts of the Spirit will operate in the body, uh, and it's always a really, really sweet time. So that's tonight at 7 o'clock. You don't have to worry about anything weird happening. Uh, We're just going to wait on the presence of the Lord, and um, we're confident that He's going to show up. And he's going to have some direction, some encouragement, some correction for us. I know he will speak to me. He'll speak to our church uh, here at Calvary Chapel. But he'll also speak to individuals who come. Because God meets us where we need to be met. 
So that is tonight at 7 o'clock. It will not be live streamed. So if you're turning into live stream, uh, we don't have the capacity to have microphones and everything around. We This is a, a an intimate family time. But we'd love to have you if you're here uh, in the audience and would like to come and just sort of check out what the Lord is doing tonight would be a really, really good time. I pray that you have a great Sunday in church. It's Communion Sunday here at Calvary Chapel, our first communion of the new year. And uh, I know many of you will be sharing in that experience uh, in your churches as well. Let me get to some questions that have been sent in while we are waiting. Uh, My first question comes from John, and he says, Hi, Pastor Ron. Happy New Year. We're going through the Psalms um, with the kids on Wednesday, and next week's lesson is Psalm 105, which, as you know, exhorts Israel to praise the Lord and worship Him for all the times He saved their bacon. Several of the uh, Psalms have the theme of remember the past, and when I bring the study to the level of personal application, I find trouble relating because I make a concerted effort not to think about the past and not as capitalized. Uh, my past is not necessarily a pleasant one. Obviously, it doesn't hold a candle to Israel's, but it's still something, uh, it's still not something I want to talk about or think about. Plus, I'm a big fan of every day is a new day and the idea that we can only control today and my future is in heaven. And yet I look at the word of God, which spends a fair amount of time looking back. I guess my question is this. Is it wrong to ignore the past? I'm specifically referring to one's personal past. And if so, what's the appropriate way to look backward? Thank you, John. Uh, John, I love this question because uh, I think a lot of this depends on the type of personality that you have. You know, I'm like you, one of those people who's looking forward. Uh, I don't remember a lot of things in the past. It's not that I forget them. It's just that I don't spend time going back because I really am focused on the grace that God has available for me today. I love the idea that I can wake up every day with a whole new batch of grace. I don't have to let yesterday or or lots of yesterdays or many, many years ago, uh, anything that happened to me or any bad thing that I did, I don't have to um, let any of those things influence my present or my future ever again. And that's a good thing. So like you, I'm practical in that sense, and I'm typically always looking forward. Now, a couple of things to consider here as you're looking at the Psalms. Jews, and in particular the psalmist here, he didn't have a sense of eternity like you and I do. Remember, uh, their idea of living for God and dying, I mean, their hope was that their Messiah would come in the present. And so the idea that they would be dead, buried with their fathers, uh, was was a sense of finality to them. So they, they didn't have, except those who are the most spiritually in tune, they didn't have a sense that there was a future in a place called heaven like we understand from our New Testament teachings. So um, they would look back at the past. By that, the psalmist and, and the prophets, by the way, uh, in, in the books of prophecy are doing the same thing. They're, they're exhorting the people to remember God's power, to remember God's goodness, to remember all of the times that they were saved from enemies because of God's mercy and because of God's love for them. And the exhortation would be, look, don't sin now. Remember what God has done when we were right with God. And so they would remember 
the power of God. Remember the faithfulness of God. Uh, one of the things that we have to understand is that many Jews believed that God had deserted them. Every time that there was an enemy, whether it was Assyria or Babylon or the Midianites or any of the otherites, um, their idea would be, well, God has failed us. God didn't keep his promises. We're supposed to be serving our Messiah. Where is the Messiah? And uh, the idea was in sin, they couldn't hear God. That's the study, by the way, I'm going to be doing in uh, Isaiah 64 on this coming Wednesday night. Um, We just can't hear from the Lord. So the, the psalmist here, the prophets in other places are exhorting them to remember the goodness of God. He's always been faithful and he always will. So that's the reference in Psalms. Now, I think there is a personal application for us, John. In this passage, I think the application is for us, especially in those times when our faith is being tested, especially in those times we feel like we're about to be overwhelmed. I think the exhortation is remember that God always showed up and he always showed up on time. That he's never failed us. He's never failed us once. We do a song here at Calvary Chapel. Um, I think it's called Never Once. It's never once have I ever walked alone. And that's a, a, a perspective of somebody looking back and saying, you know, there were times I felt abandoned. There were times I didn't feel your presence. But now, from my perspective, looking back, I see, Lord, that you were always there and that I was never alone, that I always was in your presence. You always had your eye on me. So that's the personal application, John, in a passage like this that would apply to New Testament Christians. As far as our past, the things that have happened to us, the bad things that have happened to us, those aren't things that we need to look back on with any regret or any sense of guilt or condemnation. Because, as you pointed out, the old is gone and the new has come. Very, very important application, I think, John. You know, uh, I'll, I'll make one more comment for you, John. I personally uh, am not really one who even looks back uh, often on the really good things God has done. You know, I don't look back and say, uh, you know, you remember when that person gave us a whole bunch of money? Remember when um, we had somebody who was miraculously healed? I'm always grateful for those things. But uh, I find personally, and I know this doesn't work for everybody, but I find personally that for me, it's always better to live in the expectation that God is going to do something today. And I don't need to work myself up or to, 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 to remember, well, God did it then, he can do it again. I know he can do it again. It's just a matter of what God wants to do today. And just for me personally, that helps me uh, personally to uh, walk in the presence of the Lord uh, a little bit better every day. Good question, John. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question from Kevin from our email inbox. He said, regarding Christ's return, is there a difference between his coming in Matthew 16, 27 with his angels and Jesus coming with his army dressed in white satin? It's actually white linen, uh, Kevin. Uh, in Revelation 19, 14, will it be angels or saints returning with Christ or both? Uh, and then he says, talking about angels, is Jesus referring to guardian angels in Matthew chapter 18, verse 10? Uh, and then he um, he gives us the verses. Um, let me just take these questions sort of in order. Matthew sixteen twenty seven says, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels. When Jesus comes, his second coming, 
Um, that's the one described in Revelation chapter 19. He is going to come accompanied both by his angels and by the saints. We're the ones in the white linen having been cleansed. Uh, we are his reward. We're told over and over that he's bringing his reward with him. And so when he comes in his reward, uh, that is the place uh, that we will be uh, with Jesus. Um, we're, we're not his army. We're not going to fight. He's going to destroy his enemies with the word. But we're going to be there because we are his reward. And the angels who've always longed to look into the things of grace and the fruit that comes from grace, uh, they will be there uh, as well. So uh, it's the same thing, just more information. The same coming, just more information. Um Matthew chapter 18, verse 10, regarding guardian angels, says this. Let me move it up a little bit. Um, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, talking about the children, for I say to you that there are angels in heaven continually see the Father of, or the face of my Father who is in heaven. Uh, There are some who take this, the other references in Luke chapter 16, um, Kevin. Uh, People say his angel took him to the presence of the Lord. And there are people use those two passages to suggest that we all have a guardian angel. I personally don't see it that way. Uh, I think we have access to all of the angels, uh, any and every angel that we need to rescue us in in a time of crisis. Um, Jesus is the one whose eye is always on us. His angels are servants uh, sent to minister to us who inherit salvation. Uh, and um, the idea there is that they look at Jesus, Jesus sends them on their way. So the angels don't look at us. They're not an angel. It's not. It's a wonderful life, and we don't have an angel named Clarence. Um, but it, it's it's a, uh, a, a belief that some people do, I think, um, without understanding. But there's nothing heretical about about uh, going to these passages and and thinking they refer to guardian angels. So I hope that makes sense, Kevin. Thank you very much for the question. 340-9585. Here is a question from Billy. Oh, this is a good one. He says, Pastor Ron, is God bound by laws of logic or is he above logic? I ask because so much of what he uh, he says or asks of us seems unreasonable. Billy, isn't it true that at times God just seems to be asking way too much of us or something that makes no sense at all? Um, God is not bound by the laws of logic. I, I don't know exactly what you mean by the laws of logic, but 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 God's ways are not our ways. So by definition, uh, His thoughts above our thoughts. Uh, so by definition, I think, Billy, um, that that we can throw logic out when it comes to the Lord. You see, God isn't thinking about things or, 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 or just doing things or asking things of us from his perspective. God is directing us according to his perfect will. So when God asks us to do something that to us seems unreasonable, that's when by faith we've got to believe that God has a different plan. And God's plan is better than our plan. I can give you many, many personal examples, Billy, but for Paula and for me, 
uh, 24 and a half years ago when God uh, spoke to us about coming to, to San Antonio, Texas. Uh, nothing seemed as unreasonable as that. Uh, we didn't know anybody here. We'd never been to Texas. We didn't want to come to Texas. I asked forgiveness for that, but, but we didn't want to come. And yet uh, we came, and as a result of coming, we now, 24 and a half years later, we look back and see how utterly reasonable it was for God to ask us. The thing is, we just don't have the whole picture, nor do we need the whole picture. The Bible says it pleases God when we walk by faith. Conversely, what the verse really says is without faith, it's impossible to please God. So when we walk into a a place that, that seems to people unreasonable, or when we do something that makes no sense, and our motive for doing it is, well, we believe with all of our heart that this is what God asked us to do. Imagine the smile on his face, Billy. What seems unreasonable to us if we are obedient, it turns out not only to be reasonable, our faith is a reasonable faith. But once we walk in his perfect will, well then, what really is unreasonable is that we ever considered not doing it. So, again, to connect God and logic really is a bad connection, Billy, because God knows the end from the beginning. I think what we have to do is step outside of our own thinking and say, Lord, because you said it, I will do so. I always think of Peter. When Jesus used his boat to go out and he said, throw your nets on the other side. And Lord, we've been out here fishing all night. I'm a professional fisherman. You're not. You preach, I fish. But then Peter said this, but because you said so, I will do it. And of course, the result was an unreasonably large catch of fish. That's really, really important. Just like a child being led by hand thinks a parent's action may be unreasonable, the parent knows exactly where to go. Well, imagine how much bigger God is than that. Good question, Billy. Keep thinking like that and um, get answers to the questions. The only thing that you need to be sure of is that when you know the answer to the question, that you apply it in your life. Here is a question from Teresa. Are babies guilty of sin or are they innocent and without sin? Uh, Teresa, John chapter 3, Jesus says that when we are born, we are condemned already. Um, David says, I was knit in my mother's womb. God, you knew everything about me. I was born in iniquity. So, Teresa, we're born with a sin nature. So, yes, babies are guilty of sin, but they're not accountable for their sin. And the reason they're not accountable for their sin is obvious. I hope it is. It's that they have no cognitive awareness of sinning. They have no understanding uh, nor uh, any ability to to combat sin or to resist sin uh, because they're just babies. So, yeah, they are guilty of sin, but they are not going to be convicted of sin that they're not accountable to understand. You know, I often get questions, Teresa, about the age of accountability, and I have no idea what that age is. I think personally that 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 age is different for every human being. God knows when we're accountable. I think we know when we're accountable. But before that time, 
and those with diminished capacities. God knows exactly what we're accountable to do and not to do, and God is just and fair, and he will judge on that basis. But when we are with I'm looking for the right word. When we sin without the knowledge of sin, then that sin is not held against us. But believe me, babies, as cute as they are, and as innocent and soft and and comfortable as they are, they're not accountable. They're not going to be held accountable. So, Teresa, you can rest assured that's going to be the case. You know, babies are selfish the minute they're born. Babies are demanding. Here's a word you don't hear often used with babies. They are relentless, completely self-absorbed. And the moms typically are the ones that pay the price for that. But because they don't know what they're doing, they're not going to be judged for their sin. Good question. Here is a question from Skip. Pastor Ron, why does it seem that many evangelicals are turning more to liturgical expressions of faith like Orthodox churches or even Catholic churches? Does someone lose their salvation if they convert? Um, Skip, you can't lose a salvation that is guaranteed by God if, in fact, you ever had it. I think that's important to understand. So nobody loses their salvation. Uh, If you have it, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance. That's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. That's very, very important to understand. Now, Skip, I, like you, have been perplexed a little bit by uh, people leaving what we would call the evangelical faith and turning to uh, Orthodox churches or uh, other liturgical churches. Uh, and I think the reasons are for, for them doing it Uh, are many, I think, shallow worship. You know, you go into a lot of evangelical churches and what you've got is is, um, um, worship that that is nothing more than music. It doesn't come from the heart, uh, and it's meaningless and without much substance. I think uh, they're attracted to liturgical churches because it makes them feel emotionally more, and I'm going to use this word in the pejorative term, religious, you know, we can go into a liturgical church and get goosebumps. And I think that's a result of, of, of uh, shallow teaching. I said shallow worship a moment ago, but, but I think the biggest culprit is shallow teaching. I think that in most evangelical churches, uh, people aren't being taught the Bible. I think their doctrinal foundation is super, super weak. You know, Paul, in his final letter, told Timothy to watch his life and doctrine closely. He can't separate the two. But because we go to churches where our ears are being tickled and we go to churches where um, we're not convicted of sin because the word's not being taught, uh, um, cute messages are given and, and we feel entertained and we walk out feeling better about ourselves. But the truth is that we haven't encountered God. And in a liturgical church, there's going to be the experience that God is in this place. It's quiet and hushed and... You know, it's um, a completely different environment. Uh, we've turned many of our worship centers into um, stages. And we 
simply don't stand behind a pulpit, open the Bible, and teach the Word verse by verse. I think when people are looking for goosebumps, uh, we're going to give it to them either with, with bad doctrine uh, or, or weak doctrine, or we're going to do it with accompaniments, and by that I mean uh, icons and statues and atmosphere, those kind of things. So, um, like you, Skip, I'm troubled that, that people would be looking. Uh, I'm more troubled that uh, people aren't being fed in church today. Um, and because they're not being fed, uh, they're being given a show or a performance. Uh, I, I think they eventually find that it's empty. And if it's empty, then there's really no value. So uh, that's my opinion, Skip. Um, hope that helps you kind of sort this out in your own mind. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. I got a little over one minute. Let me start and see if I get a really quick question. Um, Curtis, here's one I can do quickly. Curtis says, do you think Exodus 32 is a proof text against congregational-style church government? Curtis, no, it has nothing to do with that, although when you have a congregational style of worship, you might end up with a golden calf, if that makes sense to you. I'm sure it does, based on the question. But no, um, there, there's there's no place in Scripture where we're given a congregational-style government as a model for running the Church of Jesus Christ. And Exodus 32 might show the terrible results of congregational-style government, but I think that even this is the point of Exodus chapter 32. Good question. Hey, the phones have been quiet. We'd love your calls, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life, the Friday show. I'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and The Word to Stand On for Life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program. We are finally done with the holidays. Here is a question from Alicia. What did Jesus mean when he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Alicia, what he meant, he's speaking to Philip. Um, Jesus is, is convinced him he's going away and and um, he's not going to leave them alone. And uh, Somebody, Philip said, if you show us the Father, that'll be enough. And Jesus said, Philip, have I been with you so long that you don't know that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? What he's saying is that, that I am the essence of the Father. It doesn't mean they're the same person, the Trinity, but both are God. So the idea here is they are Completely equal in attributes, completely equal in mission and authority. Uh, I would add the Holy Spirit in this as well, Alicia. But uh, what he's saying is the only way to see the Father, Philip, is to see me. I've been with you a long time. The Father and I are one. He's been teaching his disciples. 
And so he's saying that I am the image of my father. You know, we have a lot of people in our church with kids, of course, and and some of those kids come out looking just like mom or just like dad. You can say, wow, the apple didn't fall very far from the tree. Well, Jesus was the tree. So they are one. They are the same. They are distinct in personage. They are distinct in ministry focus. But they are one in person, in unity, and in heart. So, Alicia, thank you for that. I hope that answers your question. Let's go to our first phone call today from Beaumont, Texas. Great. James on line one. James, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, yes, hi. Uh, Pastor Ron, um, uh, actually near Belmont. Uh, kind of between oh, Belmont. And okay. Pilot. Yeah, so not so far. Um, okay. <laughs> I have a question because, I have a question because uh, a, a friend of mine, a uh, girlfriend, uh, Diana, we were discussing this tonight, uh, kind of forgot uh, maybe some of the train of thought, but on 1 Corinthians 11, 6, and, and it's where, you know, Paul discusses uh, women and, and head covering and so forth, and it's, can I get the uh, uh, symbolism and the relationship portions of it, but I'm not really sure why we don't, um, other than the fact that it's a tradition. I mean, why do we not uh, still uh, do that today? I mean, why is that still not a part of our our worship and our, our ministry and our fellowship? And I'll just list them off here. Thank you, James. Good question. Uh, James, the difference between, say, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, where God says, I do not permit a woman to teach you have authority over a man. Uh, two things. That was the context of the passage was orderly worship. This is the way order's been set out. And then to establish his case as, as a once for all, you know, um, um, this is what happened, this is the result, and that means from now on we're going to do this. He went to Genesis to establish uh, a, a hermeneutic foundation. Um, if First Timothy 2 doesn't go to Genesis, then we can say, well, you know, maybe that was a local situation. So um, we, we know that's a once-for-all-time directive. Now, in 1 Corinthians, it's completely different. You've got to remember that the entire message of 1 Corinthians is a rebuke to a church that's out of control, a church that is carnal in every way. I mean, they're arguing amongst themselves about who they follow, who's the greatest. Is it Paul or is it Peter? Is it Apollos? Is it Jesus? Um, they're, they're, they're suing one another in court. Their, their demonstration of spiritual gifts are completely out of control. And so he's writing this letter of rebuke to them to establish for this church only the fix for the problem. And in 1 Corinthians 11, when he says, if a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. You have to remember what was going on in Corinth. Corinth was a place where there was a a temple to worship um, uh, Diana or Artemis. Um, uh, the goddess of fertility, um, and, and the temple to worship, of course, was occupied by, uh, at any given time, a thousand temple prostitutes, both male and female, by the way. And, and the temple prostitutes would have their hair shaved. 
And because of that, they're, 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 it's sort of an advertising that says, I'm available. I'm available for quote-unquote worship. And then they would sin, of course. Well, in Corinth, as, as Paul is addressing this out-of-control church, he's got a situation. In Corinth, the way they would have worshipped is the men would sit on one side and the women went on, on another side. And he's talking about uh, the, this, this harangue you know, this this dissonance in the church where the women would be shouting over the men and the men shouting over the women. And Paul is basically saying, stop it. Now, the other thing to understand, this might be the most important thing. He's really not talking about hair at all. He's not talking about a cover over the head. What he's talking about is authority. If you go back in the passage uh, to get the context, he's talking about uh, a man who prophesies or prays with his head covered dishonors his head. He, he's open to Jesus. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Her hair, head is the husband. It's as though her head were shaved. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, um, if you are praying or you're prophesying or you think you're prophesying and you're doing so without being submitted to your husband's leadership, ladies, then you're not prophesying at all. You're out from under the authority of your husband. The, the man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head because his head is God. And he says that in this, in this book. So the idea here is we need to pray under authority. We need to prophesy under authority. And so he says in the verse that you asked about, if a woman doesn't cover her head, she might as well be in the temple, advertising herself as being rebellious and disobedient and, 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 and carnally focused. So that's the reason. And there's no Genesis foundation to be laid here. So this was a local church problem being addressed. by, And this is just one of many, many problems in the church of Corinth. But it really has nothing to do at all with physical head covers. He's really talking about authority. So the women ought, verse 10 says, to have a sign of authority on her head. Her husband is her authority in the church. So I hope that makes sense. Uh, There are still many, many places in the world where even in Christian churches, Orthodox churches in particular, uh, where they will have head coverings. It's cultural, uh, but but they don't need to. Uh, we do not need head coverings uh, unless, of course, uh, you and your wife are, are praying uh, out of control and your church is carnal. Uh, there's a lot of churches I'd like to put head coverings on, but, but they don't. Uh, they're the ones that wouldn't listen. So I hope that makes sense, James. Thank you for calling from Belmont, not Beaumont. I appreciate it. Here is a question from Maurice. Maurice says, Jesus paid our debt on the cross. I get that. But why does the debt have to be punished instead of just being forgiven? You know, Maurice, I think sometimes with all the teaching we have on grace, and you can't teach about grace too much, but I think sometimes grace is misrepresented as getting away with sin. And it's not. God is just. God is holy. We never get away with sin. All sin has to be punished or God is no longer just. And if God is no longer just, then he's no longer God. So sin has to be punished. Um, One of the problems that comes up, Maurice, 
is that people reject uh, the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement um, because they they want to they want to believe that God wasn't angry and God didn't have to do that and 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 uh, that flies in the face of what we're taught in the scriptures. Jesus paid the price. If he, uh, Isaiah fifty three talks about the price of our peace was placed upon him, but he was chastised for the iniquities of us all. And for God just to say, you know, I just forgive you, uh, well, that would leave sin unpunished. And again, that would put God in a position where he wasn't. You know, if you reject the penal substitutionary atonement doctrine of the New Testament, that, that again is clear in the Old Testament as well, um, then basically you're, you're saying, you know, sin doesn't have to carry with it consequences. And it does. If God's not just, he's not God. If God is going to let somebody, anybody get away with sin, then he has to let everybody get away with sin. And Maurice, what God did for me, and he did it for you too, he was punished so we wouldn't have to be. And that's the only reason our debts were paid. So it's it's an important doctrine, PSA or penal substitutionary atonement. We really need to understand the value of God when we come to the communion table here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, this coming Sunday, I will explain that this cracker that was broken for you, it's not his body, it represents his body. And that cracker is a symbol of God saying how much he loves you. I love you so much, I can't bear to see you punished. My father loves you so much that he would rather punish me. The Bible says it pleased God to crush his son. Think about that. Well, that's what penal substitutionary atonement is. The wrath of God that could not overlook even the smallest sin had to punish all sins. That's why it became dark on the earth. That's why God turned away from his son, forsaking him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because the father was crushing his son. He who knew no sin was becoming our sin that we might become the righteousness of God. That's really important. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Melissa asks, uh, I believe that God should want every Christian of the best things this world has to offer. Also that he wouldn't want us to be sick. Do you agree? Um, Melissa, you've got so many problems with that. Now clearly you come from a, a faith church or prosperity church. I hate to diminish the word faith by calling it a faith church. But but for a church to to uh, teach that God never wants anybody to be sick, or God never wants anybody to be poor, if you just have enough faith, is heresy. It's heresy. Think about the Apostle Paul. Well, the, before Paul, think about Jesus. Jesus, who certainly, according to the standards of a prosperity church, would have enough faith, said, Father, is there any way this cup can pass for me? Nevertheless, thy will, not my will, be done. That's what a true prayer of faith really is. There are some of these prosperity churches that have the temerity to teach that Jesus wasn't delivered because he put in that, nevertheless, thy will, not my will, be done. He should have just demanded that God deliver him. Remember, he had 12 legions of angels at his beck and call, and he refused to take another course. So, for you to believe that God wants us to have the best things in this world, 
is to miss the entirety of your Bible. Read the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when Paul describes the things that he went through. Not only was he crushed, not only was he shipwrecked, not only was he beaten with the 40 lashes minus one, he was naked, he was cold, he was hungry. Are you going to doubt, Melissa, that Paul was in God's will? Paul forsook the best things in this world to be faithful to his God who gave him the best thing in this world and that is his soul. So that is completely in contradiction to what the word teaches. The people that believe what God wants us doesn't want us to be sick. How do you explain the many servants of God that are in the pages of your Bible that were sick, some who nearly died? So, God created a perfect world where no one would get sick. God created a world so perfect that we would have the best things in it. It was mankind, Melissa, that messed it up. So don't blame God when you're sick. Um, You can ask God with a great heart to heal you. But this silly name it and claim it stuff, that is so relevant, or so, um, not relevant, it's the wrong word, um, which is so common in our church culture. Uh, It's heresy, and we need to grow up. We need to mature in our faith. Um, Sarah wants to know, oh, wait, I got a phone call first before Sarah, let's go. Uh, I've got Ray on line one from San Antonio. Ray, thanks for calling, you're on the air. All right. Happy New Year and all of that stuff. But um, You too, Ray. Good to hear from you. Previous uh, business of, uh, I think it was before Melissa when you had, had that uh, question sent in, uh, the subject going on, and now I'm kind of doing my senior moment thing. <laughs> Yeah, you, you're, you're talking about the, sub, the penal substitutionary atonement and why did God have to punish sin? Yeah. Yes, okay, there we go. Um, now I'm back on track. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was concerned about, uh, well, a few things. However, you know, it's, it's come to uh, the surface previously uh, that... Uh, you frown upon the idea of well i'm a i'm i'm saved but i've been backsliding and <laughs> i won't go into that but in that in that idea when 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 we take our last breath and then we go with be in the presence of the lord and as as it goes with the judgment and I don't know how all of this fits as far as because we won't have any any uh, sorrow or anything, but we will have to suffer the consequences of our you know foolish actions. And and if you could just kind of shed a little little light on that for me, that would be great. And I'll listen on the on the radio. I can do it. Right. Thank you very very is that much. Okay. Yeah, I think I got it. Um, you know, we 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 have to. We don't have to f- struggle 
with the consequences of our sin in heaven. Our sin is forgiven. I think that's something we've got to remember. We've got to separate uh, um, um, justification from sanctification. Because we are justified by faith, uh, we're never going to give account for our sins in heaven. Our foolish decisions uh, are, are, are not going to be judged uh, except in terms of receiving and losing rewards. So uh, the, the man and the woman, Ray, as you use the term backsliding, you know I hate that term. But um, those sins have been forgiven. If they're truly born again, those sins have been forgiven, and they're going to be welcomed in heaven. The consequence, however, is going to be the loss of rewards. And uh, beyond that judgment, there will be no more sorrow, no more tears. No, but, but believe me, Ray, on that day of judgment, the Bema seat, not judgment for salvation, but the judgment of rewards, uh, on that day, there's going to be a lot of sadness. We're going to see that, that God wanted to give us more rewards and we didn't earn them because we weren't faithful. And I, I, I can't describe the pain. I can't describe the sorrow we're going to have. I just know that when we look at Jesus and he's going to hand us our, our crowns with those hands that have been scarred by nails, uh, I think it will crush us if those crowns are taken from us and given to another. Um, that's, that's the consequence of our behavior. But we'll never be judged for salvation. We will... Uh, that judgment has already been placed upon Jesus, uh, and and we have become righteous. So justification means that we are just as if we'd never sinned. Sanctification is the matter you're talking about. That is the process of being made more like Jesus each and every day. So, Ray, um, the judgment in heaven will be for rewards or loss of rewards, but the judgment to get into heaven has already been placed upon Jesus. And if we're truly born again, and Ray, I know you are, then what that means is that we're going to be in heaven with Jesus. And uh, once we get past the Bema seat, uh, the man who is um, unfaithful um, to, to, to represent Jesus at home in his marriage, the woman who is unwilling to submit to her husband, who's unwilling to, uh, to, to, to set an example before uh, their children, uh, there's going to be loss of rewards for those things. We've still got to be faithful in order to receive the rewards, but those times when we're not faithful, if we're truly born again, and that's the caveat that, that we all have to wrestle with, if we're truly born again, then we're never going to have to struggle with our sin. Good question, Ray. Thank you very, very much. Here is the question I started to read from Sarah. Um she says, Pastor Ron, don't you struggle with God's teaching about the roles of women in the First Timothy passage that you often quote? Um, Sarah, I only often quote it because I often get asked about it. And no, I don't struggle with God's teaching about the roles of women. I, I'm, I'm a servant. A servant doesn't struggle. A servant is obedient. The people who are struggling with it are the people that don't want to do it. So maybe it's true, Sarah, that you struggle with it, but but I'm going to challenge you to, to to sort of hash this out with the Lord. You see, it's His church. This is what I always say. I'm going to teach. I'm not teaching tonight, but if it was a normal Friday night, I'd be teaching Bible study. And, and here's what I would say. I said, Lord, um, help me to teach Your Word to the people You love as a servant of God. I am Your servant. These people are Your treasure. 
This is your word. What do you want to say? And that's the kind of thing that we have to wrestle with when it comes to questions that we don't like. You know, there's a lot of statements in the Bible. Um, in everything, give thanks. That's a hard one. I struggle with that one because I don't often give thanks in the middle of real difficult times. It doesn't say give thanks for them, but it says give thanks in those times. And, um, yeah, I struggle with that. But but as a servant, I realize if I am in an area of disagreement with God, then I'm the one who's the problem, not God. So, uh, honestly, I don't struggle with God's teaching about anything, um, whether or not it's right or wrong. And as a woman, Sarah, I understand that there are a whole bunch of women who think, well, I think I should be equal. You've been westernized. You've been culturalized. And what we need to understand is that Paul says as Christians, we're not our own, we're bought with a price. None of us have any rights. And when God gives us different roles, our responsibility is to be obedient in those roles so that God can accomplish his will through us in the church, in our lives, to win people's hearts. So no, I don't struggle at all. I I don't like that people think I'm misogynistic. I don't like that people think I'm old-fashioned. I don't like any of that. But the truth is, I am a servant of God, as you are, Sarah. So you're the one who needs to struggle with God's teaching and why that's so offensive to you. As I read my Bible, there's only one role in the church that women are forbidden to enter, and that's the role of pastor in a church. Why is it that women are so fixated on the one thing they can't have? Well, I know the answer. It's the same reason that Eve was fixated on that one tree that God said you can't eat the fruit of. How many times, Sarah, do you think that God had to watch Eve walk by that tree? She'd look at it. She maybe got close enough she could smell the fruit. Maybe every once in a while she'd go up and kind of put her arms, her hands on the fruit and squeeze it. And the enemy was right there saying, oh, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, God said that we shouldn't eat, we shouldn't even touch. And then the question was asked, did God really say, well, the one piece of fruit that women are fixated on is that one thing that God said they can't do. We have to wrestle with that. And the problem is always us, it's never God. So no, I don't struggle with it at all. And, and believe me, Sarah, it has nothing to do with men being smarter, being more spiritual, or being more uh, gifted to teach. Um, I've said many times in this program, we have many gifted women teachers at our church. Uh, uh, there are some of them I think are better teachers than I am, uh, but none of those, because they really understand their Bible, have ever wanted to usurp the authority of being a pastor in the church. So no, I don't struggle with it at all. And I think it's about time we all stop struggling with it and just start being obedient because that's what servants do. Thank you, Sarah, for the question. Ooh, I thought I had more time for one more, but I don't. Hey, quick reminder, we're going to have an afterglow tonight. We're going to see the gifts of the Spirit move in the church. It's always a beautiful time, lots of encouragement and direction. Um, maybe we can see there 7 o'clock. Uh, I'll be back, Lord willing, to Monday, rather, on AM 6.30, The Word. We'll see you then. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye.
Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Oh, yeah.